0: I don't think consumers differentiate between 85, 95, and 90. People only differentiate between 0 and 100. At the top, there's only room for one, right? I believe in India, 80% of celebrity usage in advertising that I see is not thought.
1: Creating is easy. What to create is a million dollar question.
2: You're listening to Marketing with Bani, in which I speak to marketing gurus. Together, we decode how marketing works in the real world to grow your business. Most founders believe that the key to expansion is to target a wide and varied target audience covering many different segments of consumers. That's the absolute death knell for a new brand. The fact is that when you are narrowly focused on a specific consumer segment with the product range that specifically solves for that consumer's specific stated problem, then you stand for something and you can then become aspirational to many others. In a super fun chat, Vani sits down to dissect and understand this with real examples from different brands with Dhruv and Dhruv. Yes, into two of Arata. Arata is a leading D2C brand. Double the speakers, twice the fun. Thank you so much for being here on this show. I want to first start by asking you, what is this name Arata? Like how, what is the correct pronunciation and how did it come about to be? Tell me about that.
0: Basin, do you want to take that? Sure. So you, so first of all, thank you so much for having us. And I think you, you pronounced it absolutely correct. It's pronounced as Arata. And Arata means something fresh, something that's fresh and new in Japanese. So our, it kind of fit very well with what we were trying to do. We were trying to introduce a fresh and new twist to hair care specifically. Because we had a hypothesis that there's a lot of innovation going on in hair, but we're not seeing any of that in India. So that's where the name comes from. And it, it's in a Japanese word meaning fresh and new, which we actually later found out in Italian means to sew. Like so sow a seed. So ended up having a beautiful double meeting.
1: And apart from just the fresh and new perspective that we were bringing to hair care, this was about four years ago when we started the company. And at that time, D2C wasn't really a buzzword. It wasn't as, as popular as it is today. And at that time, it was quite pioneering and cutting edge to launch a brand on the internet and just sell directly to the customer and bypass a lot of the middlemen and the, and the modern trade stores and gender trade stores. So it was not only a new and fresh and new perspective on hair care and skin care, but it was also a fresh and new perspective on how to make small batch fresh products and get them to the customer as
0: soon as possible.
2: Wow, that's fantastic. And did you ever think that might come in the way of scalability?
0: I was just going to say, we initially did have that concern that if we want to ensure that we never compromise on the integrity of our ingredients, uh, would that hamper us from extending our our product offering or would that hamper NPD? But I think we quickly found out that no, it it hasn't hampered us thus. And we started
1: with contract manufacturing, where we'd have our own unique formulations, but we were working with different contract manufacturers throughout the country. That's where we were sourcing from and we were distributing over the internet. And there weren't any, you know, supply chain or any other kind of bottlenecks or constraints that we had to work within. So scalability was never an issue. We always made sure we partnered with manufacturers and suppliers who could scale up with us and also made sure we sell on platforms like our own website and different marketplaces that could continue to to drive business for us as we scale.
2: That's fantastic. So you're saying you're, you've you been able to scale while manufacturing with several different suppliers and you are keeping, you, you've been able to... Keep quality consistent despite that. That's right. Okay, so tell me, how have you gotten to 100 crores? I've seen this number 100 crores. You're so young. You're so young into the business. How does one hit 100 crores?
1: Yeah, so there's a clarification there. So the 100 crores is actually the, the most recent valuation. 100 crores is not actually the run rate just yet. In terms of a run rate, we're still around the 25 to 30 crore mark. So we have rapidly scaled up over the last four years. and uh, And I think one of the reasons why we've been able to ramp up and scale up so aggressively is one is I think we found very specific niches by addressing opportunities that are unmet and unserved or underserved rather so long as you find a niche and you build the product number one and two raise enough capital and build enough infrastructure to bridge the gap between the demand and supply scaling up in this day and age it's really not as hard as it used to be because we have access to distribution on the internet and we have access to to data from performance marketing and specifically targeted marketing we have great access to marketplaces, people are discovering brands and are open to trying brands on social media. So I feel like it gone are the days where one needs to have a ton of cash and you know how it used to be in the old economy days to build a consumer brand and scale up. And even though we haven't got to 100 crores, we know of many brands that have been able to in less than a five-year period get to 100 crore kind of run rate mark.
0: I'd also just like to add there that it's also not I it's also not easy. We've been on this journey for about four years. Entrepreneurship and the startup life is. Very difficult. It's also because you start out as in most cases, of course, you have a lot of, say, hypothetically technical experts who are founders as well. But for Madhok and I, that wasn't the case. We started out as generalists, which seems to be quite common amongst a lot of other startup founders. And we slowly had to start making that move from understanding that, OK, look, these are the tasks that we do we that we do personally as generalists. We then moved on to hiring team members who were also generous. And and now slowly we found that the next stage of growth is going to come through specialists. But this journey has been a, a very difficult one, a very challenging one, but a very rewarding one as well. So again, scale part is relative, like Madhuk mentioned, of course, even getting to, you know, around the 25-30 crore number that we're at right now is, let's put it this way, we have far more opportunities to get there now than we ever did before. But let I also wouldn't want our viewers to think that, oh, getting to 30 crores or 50 crores or 100 crores or more is you know something that's very simple and easy. It's taken a lot of trial and error, a lot of experimenting, and above all, a massive amount of failures, but what we like to call learnings. So we're there. We have we've learned the hard way many, many times. And during the course of our chat today, we would even like to tell you what those learnings were and how we meandered away from what our core offering and our core proposition was and how we've circled around and come right back.
2: So tell me about exactly this, Dhruv. This the what our core offering is. Tell us a little about your product and what is who is the core consumer. You are targeting this product at so to talk to us about the product and the consumer.
0: So essentially what our brand mission is, is that Arata is a plant-based hair care brand with advanced solutions for all hair types. This is something that we've embodied now. Our core offering when we started was specifically hairstyling products and specifically a hairstyling gel and hairstyling cream when we first started out. We always started out as a unisex brand. So we wanted the demographic to be equally we wanted to be inclusive brand, which had women men and others. And we f- we found haircare solutions and styling solutions that could be offered in both. When, when we first launched the Hedges and hacking, our thought process was that by default, this would probably be highly skewed to men because men mm-hmm. would have a much higher yeah. use case for this then. Very soon after launching, we very quickly, and not by design, our Hedges and hacking specifically very quickly, got, very quickly got accepted into the curly hair women community. community. Uh, into what they call the CG uh, method, which is the Curly Girl method. So, we were very pleasantly surprised and this is actually what really helped us take off. The Curly currently has really really helped us get to where we have and we quickly very quickly realized that we were filling a very big gap that existed in the market, specific, specifically for Curly Hair Women. We found that Curly Hair Women were actually using braille cream and general men's styling products for styling their hair. And uh, when we launched our gel and cream, our first two products, which even today, our uh, top-selling products. It was very quickly taken by the Kurdish community, and they started using it. They started loving it. They started posting about it, and, and very quickly we started scaling up these two products. And and when that started happening, we said, okay, fine. You know, we found a product market fit specifically over here where the, a large gap existed. And post that, I think is where we made it into this so one and a half year, two-year market. We ended saying, wow. We started looking a little externally instead of internally. We started looking around saying, Oh wow, there's so many skincare brands. There are vitamin CD creams that are working, there are green tea serums that are working. There are you know hyaluronic acid products that are working. And we started looking a little bit outwards and saying, Oh wow, there's such a large market in skincare. Let's start developing with the same brand philosophy, philosophy we have. Let's start developing products in skincare. And then we started with that for almost a year. And we discovered that. Arata just wasn't known in the market and we weren't loved by our customers for our skincare. We were known and loved for our hair care. And
2: how long were you into the hair journey before you ventured into skin? I would say about a year and a half to
0: two years. So for about a year and a half to two years is when we were focusing more on hair. And then there was about a year in the middle, last year, where we said, you know what, let's look to further expand the portfolio because we have great Philosophy as far as the ingredients and our brand pillars are concerned, we can totally extend this into skincare. To be fair, as
1: well, when we started, we had an we had a portfolio of products in various categories. We started with lip balm, a face wash, a shampoo, conditioner, a body wash. So we had a presence across multiple categories right from the beginning. As you know, as luck would have it, and as the scale came organically, we saw a larger uptake in hair care, as Basin mentioned. But then we made a purposeful and deliberate plan to expand our skincare portfolio, as Basin mentioned, seeing the the wave of vitamin C, and all these different opportunities that were opening up in the market. But despite doing that, we did see an increment in sales. We did see a little bit of increase in in, in, in in trial by our existing and new customers for our skincare products. But to date, the haircare products still remain to be the best sellers. And that's made us understand that, you know what, there are a dime a dozen skincare brands, but what seems to be really working well for us is hair. And an interesting insight is that we've discovered is that people know when something works for their hair almost instantly, as opposed to with skin where you have to try something for months on end to understand whether it has high efficacy with hair, you use a product, it works, you know it immediately. And if it doesn't work, you also know it immediately. And that's been one of the reasons why we've decided to go after this hair care space because we're seeing that if people are using hair, our hair care products and it's working for them, then that's a significant advantage that we have that potentially other brands don't. Because we've understood a lot of brands are trying to move away from or not move away from skincare, but also to beef up their hair care portfolio. And hair care as a market is significantly larger than that of skincare. So it has all worked out well for us to bring us to this point where we have the hypothesis today that hair care is who we are. It's where we want to be and, you know, what our strengths are. And that's what we want to double down on.
2: Wow. Madhok, this was really insightful and useful. But I have two big questions coming from what you've just said. Number one, did you not think that now that we ventured into skin and we may not be getting the kind of numbers that we'd expected in skin, but skin is such a large category. Why would I not want to just participate in skin and have revenue? coming in, even if it is a drip-drip revenue but even if I choose to continue playing hair and hair is what I focus on and skin I'm not going to specifically advertise I'm not going to really focus my energies on skin but participate in that market right at the fringes and even if I'm a decimal fifth decimal tenth decimal player and I get in some revenue then what's wrong with that let me keep that that's number one you didn't think of doing that you chose to move away from skin so my first question is why did you not or, how come you didn't consider the possibility of allowing skin being a revenue generator for you, knowing that skin may have kuch the hair? You know, ab kuch the product hai. We've made the effort of launching some stuff over here. Why retract? That's number one. Number two, how did you come to this realization? Did you actually do consumer research? How did you figure that women who buy, or let's say consumers who buy my hair products, are actually finding, hey, this works. Hey, this I seem to be able to settle with this brand. How did you come to find that out?
1: So we actually did not actually kill our skincare offering, but we rather shifted focus. So we continue marketing and positioning ourselves as a haircare brand. And in fact, our entire new product development cycle or a new product development pipeline for the year of 2022 and for the most part of 2023 is all haircare focused. So we didn't actually go out and say we want to pull back from the skincare market because in and we have access to, say, maybe a few lakh customers across the country. And there are, there are a few early adopters, but that's not to say that we won't be able to build a sizable offering in the skincare space because, like you rightly said, it's a large opportunity and there's no harm with, with revenues coming in from there. We've simply just shifted focus and, and realized that what's working for us is what we need to double down on. We can... Under index on the new product development pipeline for skincare, we can continue serving those customers and products that are currently doing well in the skincare space, but we need to really double down and leverage what we have going for us in haircare. We haven't actually gone and withdrawn from skincare. We've just simply dialed up our haircare offering
0: and marketing and positioning. I just want to also add there that we also saw that the data was telling us that more than 75% of our revenue was coming from haircare. Essentially moving focus, not moving focus, adding to that focus the skincare category also meant that having to divide budgets, having to mix the communication and advertising focus also towards skincare, eventually meant that we were moving focus away from what our core market was. The impression that we got was that it eventually it was turning out to be a situation where a customer would land on our website and say, "Oh, these guys are good at everything, but they don't seem to be experts at anything." So when you come onto and this would I would just say this generally for all brands. That if I as a consumer were to come onto your website and not understand what your core value proposition is, that what is that one problem you're looking to solve in my life? But what you're saying is, oh, everything in my, on my website is amazing and it's going to solve all aspects of your life. As a consumer, I will not believe that. So that's why we also strongly, from a proposition point of view, we decided that, look, the data is screaming at us. 75 to 80% of our revenue is coming from hair care. We are loved for our hair care. So therefore, it was both qualitative and quantitative. We need to ensure that we now build out the business as the hair care experts of India. And we need to ensure that our creatives, copy, comms, everything is in that direction as well and not diluted.
2: Fabulous, bazin I'm going to take the liberty of calling you Bazin and Madhok. For my own sanity, of the listeners as well, so what was spoken in the last few minutes was absolute gold. I just want to say this add my own point of view also to this conversation, which is that you know most founders believe that the key to expansion is to expand the product range, expand geographies, expand channels, have different propositions, different brand propositions for different product lines so as to be able to appeal to a very wide audience. But the reality is, the fact is that actually covering many different segments of consumers is counterproductive. You know, it goes against the principles of marketing. The fact is that when you are narrowly focused on a specific consumer segment with a product range that specifically solves for the consumer's stated problem. Like you said, people must come on my website and know exactly what I'm solving for. Then you create a space You own a space in the consumer's mind. And that then becomes your stronghold in the consumer's mind. The reason why consumers come to you, once they know why come to you, then they can also discover blah, 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 blah. And may also want to buy the blah, 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 blah from you. But there has to be a central hero on the back of which the brand is built. So this is fantastic. You
1: know, I completely agree with you. We do see some exceptions to the norm. We do see some brands that have really gone into hundreds of SKUs across multiple categories hair, skin, color, leave ins, rinse offs. It seems to be working well for them. In your opinion, do you think that there's a tipping point beyond which, you know, is it a revenue threshold or is it a more softer aspect beyond which one can venture out into multiple categories? Because this is a debate that Basine and I keep having internally as well.
2: For me, the answer is in the stage of the life cycle of the brand. Like I said earlier, see, at the end of the day, the consumer's mind is extremely cluttered. She is receiving a zillion messages and advertising, not just advertising in your own category, but advertising across. So there's some crazy number, which is the number of messages on an average by various brands across the day that we are exposed to without even consciously registering are over a thousand branded messages of various kinds that we are exposed. Now, in all of this clutter, I as a marketer, I as a founder of a business have to make sure that my brand goes into the consumer's head and she is going to remember me when she has to buy this category. And the answer to that question, Dhrov, is basically... If I'm not able to first occupy a space in the consumer's mind, then there's the more I dilute the messaging, the more messages I give, the more number of confusion I create in her head, lesser the chance of me being picked up, lesser the chance of me being able to build muscle memory. Actually, all brands are built on one hero product, on one hero brand, on one hero offering or one hero service. That I know, for example, if it's a clinic all clear, clinic all clear is a dandruff shampoo. Now, they may, they may eventually, they have variants which are called shine. There are variants which are called daily clean, for example. Now, I don't know if there is a daily clean, but I'm saying that cannot be the core. They've gone into various such segments in order to participate. Let's say there's a shine market. They've gone to participate in the shine market. But fundamentally, the brand stands for dandruff. I go to a clinic called Clear for dandruff. And even Shine, actually, they will deliver in the context of dandruff. It will not be Shine devolved the dandruff.
1: It won't be the shiniest of shining shampoos. It will just be the shiniest of dandruff shampoos.
2: Exactly. So I'm saying it's more important to be able to own a space in the consumer's mind. Once I'm able to draw the consumer to me, for something specific. then for her to trust me on various other offerings is a lot easier. it's it's like zivame. you went to a woman you went to zivame to buy a bras and if Ziva were to also start which they have actually now they're doing petticoats and they're doing a whole lot of other ancillary products in fact if Zivame were to tomorrow start doing even jewellery and I'm there browsing through bras and if I happen to discover ju- discover some cosmetic jewellery and I suddenly see a pair of earrings they say yeah this looks nice I mean buy that as well but if Zivame, why right to start started to say hey I do bras and I do jewellery and I do makeup and I do you know mattress And I do whatever else, then say, I don't know who the F are you and I don't know why I should come to you.
0: Yeah, I think I'm in full agreement with that because even at our end, this is a discussion we have almost every single day about how to continuously keep sharpening what our proposition truly is. And I think that's also a dynamic process. It's not something, I mean, very often you have clarity on right from the start because there's a lot of moving parts to it till you understand, okay, where exactly is my product market fit? So, even for us, when we say we're looking to build ourselves out as the hair care experts of India, that, that that's a 25,000 crore market. We can't be experts at hair haircare in general that that can't be the brand positioning so we're continuously now through all our learnings to say that okay within haircare like you mentioned dandruff within haircare there's the dandruff experts within haircare now where does Arata stand what does Arata stand for and what is that exact value pre- proposition so now that's the next part of how we're trying to flesh this out and build out exactly what the brand proposition is
1: yeah and we have to look at our portfolio and see and evaluate that which skus are here for for the play-to-play strategy and which, which skus are here for the play-to-win strategy and then build it like that.
2: Very nice. I love the words used. Play-to-play and play-to-win. Absolutely. I'll give you a parallel example from my hair days at Unilever. I launched a range of hair care products in 10 countries, Southeast Asia and South Asia, for colored hair. Now, our proposition was hair care products for colored hair, which is fashion out. Color is you color your hair to cover grays and then you cover your hair to make a fashion statement. And our proposition was to this young college goer, young working executive who's out there working with a bounce in her step and she's looking to make a fashion statement with her hair. And of course, like both of you also earlier said in different words, hair is a tool of instant transformation, right? I can style my hair, I can color it, I can do stuff with my hair to instantly make a statement about myself, which I can't do with skin. Now, because our proposition was hair care for colored hair, fashion out, we realized that actually the covering greys market is about 50x of the fashion market. And fashion market is far bigger in countries like Vietnam or Singapore. And most other countries where the market is very large, it's all covering greys only. So we said now, again, it was this classic question. How do I make sure that I'm participating in a large enough category? How do I make sure that I'm not limiting my growth potential? And so we did launch a black shine. We launched a black shine. And that black shine was different from the other black shine that Sunsilk had. Of course, we didn't call it black shine. I don't remember. We used to we called it black something else. But that was just smart marketing. And that black was the play to play versus... The burgundy and the the light browns, etc., which were play to win, the black was play to play. But that play to play, that black, the market we were competing in or playing in rather or participating in was so large that we said, even if that volume contributor of mine is much, much bigger than the segment that I'm advertising, it doesn't matter. So I'm advertising a burgundy and I have less than 10% share of my revenue is coming from burgundy. Majority of it is actually coming from black and deep brown. But that's just fine. So long as my brand is built around fashion and that's what's actually drawing people in. I'm all right with the with the revenue split, with not in synchrony with what I'm advertising, but then at least my brand occupies a sharp enough position in the consumer's mind.
1: Makes sense. And as a consumer, we probably subconsciously behave exactly the same way so if we regularly visit a restaurant because we love the pizza there we'll probably end up ordering a salad and a dessert and maybe a garlic bread on the side as well so for it to be a wholesome experience one has to the brand has to ensure that there is something there's some supporting cast to the to, to the oscar winner as well
2: And tell me, did you ever have a lot of pressure from your investors? Did your investors say, what are you doing? You're playing in such a small category. There's not worth investing in.
0: I think it was actually quite the opposite. Our investors, and just to put it out there, we have some really fantastic gold standard investors. And from the very beginning, they were just trying to encourage us to say, look, find a, not even necessarily a niche, but just find a core value proposition and stick to that. And in the early days, like I mentioned earlier, I think we were a little bit all over the place as far as that was concerned. But I think that's probably a part of understanding and exploring and figuring out what exactly the value proposition is. What is the part of the consumer's requirement that you want to play to? And they actually encourage us to just find a niche, find a a subcategory to really focus in and put all our energy towards that. Because they said, look, once you find those those early adopters, once you find that product, very strong product market fit, even in the smallest niche, they become your rabid loyalists and you can then start moving into the larger category within which that subcategory exists. You can always start upselling from there. Don't be afraid that the market is too small to begin with. Just focus, try and get as much of that very small niche as you can. Become an expert within that niche, and then slowly start fleshing it out more and more. That is the best strategy to go after. So we actually never got investor pressure that the market is too small.
1: Yeah, we and if there's always investor pressure that we have to scale up and outperform, which is understandable because uh, as an asset class, venture capital investing is about higher returns and correspondingly higher risk. So we have to outperform as opposed to a lifestyle business that's growing organically. But I think we were also fortunate enough to have investors who are seasoned in investing in consumer brands. And they understand that consumer brands aren't usually built the way tech companies are, where it's go boom or bust. And and there is there's a rhythm to business and there's a certain time that you know that brands take to to build and mature. So we don't have any rush or pressure that we're playing in too small a category or, you know, we're not growing fast enough. It's I think it's a seasoned consumer brand investor will understand that it it takes time to build credibility and, and the returns from the credibility built over time are exponential. So a brand that's five years old is going to be far more credible than a brand that's, say, two years old. So lucky to have good investors who understand the consumer space that
2: way. Yeah, I think that is so precious, isn't it? To be able to have investors who share your vision and who are not? I mean, who are on your sides for side for doing business the right way, rather than this undue pressure to expand and get more business at any cost. And yeah,
0: it's essentially the difference between looking to build out to begin with a sustainable business that can scale, or just essentially having a mandate of boom or bust that put everything behind it. And then you're just, you're playing against very, very difficult odds.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much, guys.
0: Awesome, Bunny. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank
1: you so much.
2: This episode was brought to you by Cherry Peach Plum. Vani and her team of marketeers and problem solvers at Cherry Peach Plum help businesses solve a wide range of growth challenges by utilizing proven marketing playbooks. Get in touch with us via cherrypeachplum.in if you want to take your brand to the next level. I hope you liked my show. And if you did, please do consider subscribing. I also have a YouTube channel by the same name, Marketing by Vani. Please do check that out too. Thank you. How badly could you screw up one (laughs) time? Okay.